0: It's a complete no man's land. It's not formally owned or contr- Well, it is owned. It's owned by Panama and Colombia, but it's not controlled by them. And it's an area where drug runners, immigrants um, on their way from Africa to America. So there's a bizarre immigrant route where you fly from Senegal pretty much as how most people do it, into South America, because it's easier to get in at South America, and then you go by bus all the way up through South America, through Ecuador, um, uh, Colombia. then you go by boat, get to this, get to the Darren Gap, and then you trek through the six-day trek, which again is, a, you know, that people die along the route, um, but it's so wild that the authorities won't chase you through, so it, it it's like the Wild West, you know, there are drug runners, there are immigrants, there are um, all sorts of people there. And there's, there are fascinated economic trades between them all.
1: Demby, Deputy Editor of CapEx. And for this week's podcast, I spoke to economist Richard Davies. Now, I say he's an economist, but not many number crunchers have trekked through lawless jungles, visited shops and restaurants in the world's most entrepreneurial refugee camp or hung out with inmates in a Louisiana mega jail. Richard's been to some of the most desperate places on the planet, but found incredible stories of human resilience and that the innate need to trade means people with nothing can create new markets and currencies from scratch. His book, Extreme Economies, examines what policymakers can learn from disaster zones, displaced societies and failed states. So I began by asking what advice he has for a world ravaged by the global pandemic. Richard Davies, thank you so much for joining me for the CapEx podcast. Um, For your book, Extreme Economies, you travel to some of the most challenging places on the planet, an island destroyed by the tsunami and the world's biggest refugee camp. What do you think a world devastated by the global pandemic can learn from some of these places?
0: I think the the first thing to say is that um, human beings are incredibly resilient. And in all of the places that I went, I certainly ended up feeling some chinks of optimism. Um, that might seem sort of totally blasé and rose-tinted to say at a time like this, but I think it is worth remembering that some people in the world have been through even tougher situations than Covid. And actually, the way that they respond, the way they adapt, the way they jump forward, start using new technologies, the way they cooperated together um, was all kind of really striking to me. So, that's the sort of upside. The downside is that in lots of the places I saw pretty big policy errors, frankly, often benign um, governments deciding to do something that they thought would help people and actually pretty much was unhelpful or even undermining. So big picture, the book is really, it's all about human resilience. It's narrative, economic stories from literally the toughest places on earth. Um, you know, the Louisiana State Penitentiary, the jail I went to, it's really hard, harder to think of any more kind of barren and economic soil, really. There's, there's, there's nothing, you start with nothing there. And yet people are able to rebuild even within the walls of a penitentiary. So that's the really hopeful side. The, the downside is that there are places all over the world that have essentially got stuck in a rut and never got out of it. So it's a kind of knife edge.
1: I think what I really loved about your book is exactly as you say, it's a real peen to the uh, resilience of the human spirit. And even in those places that you visited, like the Zatari refugee camp and the Louisiana jail just sort of paraphrase Jurassic Park, the free market found a
0: way. It did, yeah, absolutely. And c- completely informally, completely without support, and more than that, actually, with the, the active attempts to control or restrain the economy. So the, the first um, section of the book, as you say, is all about, it's essentially resilience on trial and, like, the triumph of resilience, it's kind of probably the most optimistic part of the book which is weird because the three places are the most barren um so how did they do it i think it's kind of interesting to discuss one thing that i didn't realize and and your your listeners will be interested in i hope i didn't intend for this to happen but the book in a way ended up being partly a kind of study of hidden finance basically so hidden um, currencies, hidden trading systems, hid, um, I- informal insurance mechanisms that people have put together. And just to talk about a couple of them. So in the Louisiana jail, it's, it's quite famous um, in uh, economics and the kind of history of economics. People have always been interested about these outsider currencies. Um, the, f- the fact that actually on the face of it, we kind of think that the Bank of England or the Fed Uh, or the ECB are, you know, the absolute bedrock of our economy, Um, you know, the the look of money is a kind of akin to the flag or the national anthem, it just seems so official and so stable and and sort of, you know, the answer. but it's worth remembering that you know for a long time central banks didn't exist and and currencies did i mean the the fed's only just over two uh, over a hundred years old, right set up after the nineteen o seven crisis and people very very quickly like overnight in these places come up with a new currency uh, Why is that fundamentally i think it's a really interesting thing is that I came away from those places feeling that the the human urge to trade and exchange is is innate actually, Um, I believe that now, Um, and why is that? It's basically because when some big shock happens, and we can think of that in the context of Covid, they're basically winners and losers, and anytime there's winners and losers, some people have got some assets or some resources or some skills, other people don't have those things, that sets up an opportunity to trade and in these places, they'd come up. They come up with their own currencies. So, in in Aceh, um, gold um, bangles were, were used as a, not really a currency, but like an informal saving mechanism that hugely saved the entrepreneurs of of Indonesia um, because they were able to very quickly liquidate that gold. In the Louisiana prison system, I found all sorts of bizarre different currencies, from pot noodles to. Um, cans of mackerel to this really weird and interesting thing, the, the scratch card prepaid debit cards, um, which as used as a currency. And in the Zatari refugee camp I found that they were using powdered milk essentially to smuggle that out and free themselves from this kind of lockdown um, designed currency where they had to use a specific type of debit card which they didn't want to use Um, And so they buy all this powdered milk, ship it out, swap it for dollars and dinars and then build their own cash economy. So in in all three cases, it was there's a huge urge to rebuild a market when you didn't have one. And one of the first things you need to do is actually to establish a currency. And they did that completely informally and without any state help.
1: Yeah. And it's fascinating how that sort of urge to to have freedom of choice shone through in these um you know pretty desperate places but i think your book also reveals that there's kind of also an innate human need to have a state so in kinshasa for example where you you, corru- you describe it as a corruption superstructure the state taxes people heavily but provides no public services people yeah. have informally privatized their own public services
0: yeah that's um that that again was just completely bizarre and and something i, I wasn't really expecting and Kinshasa is probably the place that changed my view of how we think about economies and even how we think about something like corruption um, completely. So just to give the bigger, the bigger picture, the, the middle part of the book. So we talked about these three amazing places where people have proved their resilience. The middle part of the book is the sort of flip side of that. It's places that should be incredible, yet have actually become um, uh, basket case economies. And for me, the like the, the biggest failure of the last century in terms of economics is probably the, the DRC, Dem- Democratic Republic of Congo, on any measure, mineral wealth, um, the rainforests, the Congo River itself, which could be the source of hy- huge hydroelectric power, just the human it, human toll it's, it's one of the top 10 biggest um, countries just by population, it just has all of the. It speaks a European language. It's on a European time zone. Any economic analysis you could do before you knew the name of the country, if you saw those things, you 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 predict, oh, this is going to be a successful economy, and yet it's it's literally the bottom of the pack. So um, and going there, I mean the statistics don't lie. You get when you get off the plane and you drive in, it's just. Concrete, not concrete, corrugated iron shack after corrugated iron shack just forever, just for like an hour's drive. People with absolutely nothing. The level of poverty is is incredible. And you're right, what has happened is this strange phenomenon where people essentially tolerate corruption because they understand that public servants just aren't going to get paid and so you kind of have to pay them these small bribes. And it's just become so regular that actually it's more like you're just paying for them and they're private. But they're not private. They're part of the state. So just to give a picture of what's, what that's like, just a simple example. Obviously, as a sort of Westerner, um, I, I was lucky enough to you know be able to afford a driver and we went around in a car. Um, and when you park on any street, it, it's and you need to change direction i mean the, the traffic is 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 terrible the roads are massive underinvestment, as you might imagine but the main thing is that most people don't travel that way they walk and it's a city of 10 million people with the infrastructure of a kind of small market town basically so the the, the streets are absolutely full of people like more full of people than you could ever imagine so say you're in this car i mean you can either just if you're in the cars facing the wrong direction you're, you're literally got a really big problem because it might be sort of two hours drive to do the loop around this road and sort of turn and turn and turn again. So you need to do a U-turn. And it's absolutely impossible to do that in these crowds. So what you do is wherever you are, and when you go to a car, there will be a police man or woman. One of the interesting things about Congo actually is that the, like the, the gender roles within the state I'd imagine that they would all be men sort of doing, uh, getting these bungs and stuff. But that that seems to not be so much of an issue there. So it's often actually police women. And as you approach a car, one will one will appear, because um, they're they're absolutely everywhere. And you just put, give them a small payment, very low, like about a dollar or half a dollar. And they'll just sort of stop the crowds and allow you to do your u-turn now obviously in 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 one sense that is corruption because they are supposed to be paid by the state you're paying them and to sort of move people off the road and to stop traffic like why is that okay but after a while talking to the congolese people that i was with you know this happens with school teachers it happens with the doctor every single thing you have to do and you say, you know, aren't you angry about this? And they say, well, you know, because they're just literally not going to be paid. So we have to pay them. Otherwise they won't do their job. And not because they're living in a mansion. I mean, they will literally starve. So um, it's it, the economy in Kinshasa is so warped that you come away from it. You know, we are trained in the West to think corruption equals bad. Actually there, it just equals survival. and you. You, do, you don't come away from these interactions thinking that people doing it are bad people they're not they're just trying to get by
1: so interesting uh, and your book's not just a book about economy it's a it's a travel book as well there are sort of shades of the intrepid victorian exploring you trekked through the lawless jungles and the Darien gap can you tell us a bit about sort of how what that was like some of the adventures you had
0: Oh, thank, thank you. That's very kind to say. So, yeah, the the aim with the book was um, to try and do something that non-economists and people that aren't interested in finance and aren't interested in, you know, where the economy is going, but they are kind of interested in, you know, roughly where their lives are going, would like. And because I basically think that the biggest econo- biggest stories in economics are untold. That's my sort of part of my and I've been part of that, you know, I wrote for The Economist magazine for um, five years and, and, you know, I churned out all my pieces on the ECB and the Bank of England. And, you know, yesterday I would have been doing the Treasury spending review. The truth is there are these absolutely incredible places. So just one, the Darien Gap, I mean, even even if um, if, if readers want to get the book, um, by the way, we've, we've got a link so they can get a signed copy. Um, sent out. That I think we're going to put in the notes. But even if they don't want to, I'll stop the I'll stop the sales pitch. <laughs> um, just look up the Darien Gap because it is absolutely fascinating. The sort of bullet point summary is this weird place in between Panama uh, and Colombia, uh, at the very thinnest part of Central America. Because of that, in the 1600s, it was literally famous in the UK. There were best selling books written about it, and the reason is that if you just sort of picture that in your mind, that it was called The Key to the Universe, and what and that was because everybody in, in Britain in that time was obsessed by trade, trade was really taking off, and it had the opportunity this place of linking both North America and South America, so it's a land bridge. And then, as 200 years later we found with the Panama Canal, it, it potentially links the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean, so there was this obsession with the Darien Gap. So that, I mean, that's just kind of interesting to me, as knowing about history, but then the really interesting thing um, is that this place, completely unknown, actually is the reason that the UK as a United Kingdom exists, and it exists because the Scottish who wanted to create a much stronger, um, uh, make their economy much stronger, decided they needed an empire and invested hugely in this expedition that went there. It's known as the Darien disaster. And on some accounts, it wiped out um, uh, over a quarter of Scottish wealth, The, 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 the entire um, financial class invested in this thing. They sent people there, it was an absolute disaster, They li- literally people, people died. Anyway, so I, fa- I, I, I went there, I found the place, I literally found the beach where the Scots landed. It's actually controlled by this, I don't really write about this in the book actually, but it's controlled by this Indigenous um, tribe called the Kuna, K-U-N-A, and it's part of the Kuna Yala, which is this tract of land that they've been given. And um, they massively protect it. So you you actually can't get onto the beach. So you can drive past this, this beach and just look at it and think that 400 years ago, intrepid Scots, five ships of them sailed there. Most of them end up dying. It's the reason our country is called the United Kingdom and there's, you know, there's no monument. There's no little sign saying the Darien disaster. It's just a sort of empty beach. So it's an example of how, you know, like there's hugely interesting economic stories in the world. What's going on there now is this is sort of less um, fun in a sense, because it's a complete no man's land. It's not formally owned or contr- Well, it is owned. It's owned by Panama and Colombia, but it's not controlled by them. And it's an area where drug runners, immigrants um, on their way from Africa to America. So there's a bizarre immigrant route where you fly from Senegal, pretty much, as how most people do it, into South America because it's easier to get in at South America. And then you go by bus all the way up through South America, through Ecuador, um, uh, Colombia. Then you go by boat, get to this, get to the Darren Gap and then you trek through six-day trek, which again is, a, you know, that people die along the route, um, but it's so wild that the authorities won't chase you through. So it, it, it's like the Wild West, you know, there are drug runners, there are immigrants, there are um, all sorts of people there, and there's there are fascinated economic trades between them all. The, the downside and the, the really worrying bit about that place is is, is also, an informal and unregulated trade in hardwoods and the uh, environment is really being destroyed at quite a pace. And, and that's a kind of corrective, I guess, for the, some of the stories in the first part of the book, which basically are very capitalist market loving. This is an example of actually, if you let the market go completely uh, to its own chords, particularly in something where you're trading the environment, you can end up with pretty bad results.
1: Yeah, I think you talk about it as a, a market that consumes its own value.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's fundamentally short term because um, you know, there's, only so, there's only so much wood. It's not the um, Brazilian rainforest. So I wanted to sort of, because in a way, and, and you, you hit the nail on the head, so I obviously wanted to tell what I thought were important economic stories. And obviously the environment is one. But I'd, all, I'd all, always, and I that sort of came across just been fascinated by this place, the Darien Gap. By the way, it's called the Gap because the Pan American Highway, which has, is championed by some people as one of the most American, most amazing, I should say American, it is also one of the most American largely funded by America, it, the, the most amazing infrastructure projects in the world. Okay, the Pan American Highway, it goes all the way from Alaska in the North to the tip of Argentina in the South. It doesn't, it's not Pan American. It breaks because they n- were never able to build it through this weird place, the Darien Gap. So, you know, I, I just wanted to go there, but I, I also wanted to, to, to touch on, on the environment in the book. And it's just, you can just see sort of what's going on on a much larger scale in Brazil, I guess, in a, in a tiny, tiny place. And you can meet all the players and ask them what's going on. And for an economist, you know, the jargon we would use as externalities or some sort of negative spillover. And literally in this town, this one town, I was able to interview all different types of people from loggers to official who are allowed to do it. to then these people who go in and just take a few branches here and there and then cattle herders then take their cattle in. But then the cattle just, you know, graze and destroy everything, destroy all the roots coming through. And then people who replant and instead of replanting the indigenous trees, they replant teak because it's it's valuable and also there's a subsidy from the um panamanian government so you've got all these players the indigenous tribes the loggers informal and formal the replanters the farmers and each one of them is just sort of acting actually quite reasonably i mean they're not really taking account of what they do but they're not doing anything like really really bad but when you add it all together it just produces this 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 market, which, as I say, and as, as you quoted, it just consumes its own value and it, it just won't be there in 10 years and they'll have undermined themselves because they won't be able to do anything like ecotourism or anything sustainable.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. And, and yeah, and talking about sort of the free market gone wild, I think you also observed some of that in, in Chile, which on paper is, you know, the, um, the second most prosperous place in South America. But I think you said that... The, the kind of Chicago School of Economics has actually caused sort of problems uh, and inequality in their capital in Santiago.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices. Yeah, so Chile's um, another sort of uh, great example, and if anybody's at all interested in it, there's a fantastic documentary, which uh, is in Spanish, but it's got English subtitles, and you can find it on the web, Um, and it's called The Chicago Boys. And this is all about soft power, basically. So goes back to 1930s and, and America deciding that they wanted to do more more soft power and less actual um, military intervention. And this then you know, built up this idea through, through to the sort of um, 60s and 70s. And what that meant was you, you, you give your advice to places. So you send scientists to places. Um, you send architect texts to places, you send infrastructure experts, and you sort of help countries build themselves up. And you also portray a positive image of America. Um, and one of the ways they did that was through economics. And they did this deal between the University of Chicago, which was at the time home to Milton Friedman. So, you know, the sort of canonical market loving economist, and um, and the, the, the major university in um, Chile, which is the Catholic University in Chile, uh, in Santiago. And these uh, it was just an exchange thing. They went there for two years and they came back and, and the documentary tells it very well. Um, and I managed to sort of get hold of, of some of these guys and they were kind enough to, to let me interview them. And to cut a very long story short, essentially what happened is Chile had a, an experiment with socialism in the late 60s up until about 72 under Allende, who is the was the president now and is still like very much the hero for a lot of people. That didn't work, it ended up in a, a general strike. There's all sorts of conspiracy theories about whether the CIA funded um, all this sort of stuff. I, I just kind of set out the evidence i I, I didn't try and prove or disprove that in the book but then basically what happened is pinochet takes over and you have as a dictator military dictator and you have what some one one person called the most extreme example the most extreme experiment in free market capitalism in the world so essentially and again i'm cutting through a lot of nuance here but all the historians say that pinochet didn't know anything about economics and oddly, he didn't run the economy in a very army like managed way. He essentially gave it over to this group of economists who um, put together a, a blueprint, which is known as El Ladrillo, uh, which is the, the brick. It's literally, it literally had one document which says, This is how we're going to run the economy. And then they did that for about the next 25 years. I mean, no other economy you know some economists would like to do that they have very clear ways that they'd like to run the economy no one else has ever done that and so yeah I, I want to go there and just understand it and I mean I could do two, two or three whole podcasts on this topic but the thing that comes from it is it's the sort of thing that if you you have to go and see or you or you have to have a whole book chapter on because in our modern sort of way of news media and Twitter, all the rest of it, you're just not gonna get it across because two things simultaneously are true. One thing is that Chile has had outstanding economic performance and the people on the ground, the very poorest people who I sought out, they really value that. And so in our general narrative we have at the moment, people on the left wouldn't accept that, right? They'd say, neoliberalism, it's terrible for everyone. It's terrible for the poor. That's just not true, it's not true for the poor. The very poorest people in Chile really valued this extreme growth rate because some of it did trickle down to them. So that is true. The other thing which is simultaneously true is that the extreme economic inequality which defines Santiago, so a tiny vignette, when I got off the plane and got on a taxi going into Santiago, I said, I'm here to do a chapter all about the economy of the city. And the guy said to me, which city? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, there's at least five cities here, depending on how much you earn. And that's the way they think about it. They literally don't live geographically in the same part of the city. The rich people live in the north, the poor people live in the south. There's a line called the Plaza Italia in the middle, and you do not cross it. And so, um, i said there's something on the left people have to accept on the right people that sort of love the free market have to accept that that level of inequality is fundamentally damaging to the social fabric of a city and to people at the bottom so you know it's it's kind of you know definitely uh interesting and it's something i don't know what the right answer is but i just know it's hugely interesting and it's good to understand and then after i literally about two months after I finished the book and I put my conclusion you know the one place I'm a bit worried about is Santiago then we just saw the huge riots so you know I don't count myself as some sort of amazing forecaster for doing that because basically if you'd been there and spoken to people I mean anyone would have predicted it because they're all fed up with the system so.
1: Why is Glasgow an extreme economy?
0: Um, Glasgow is an extreme economy because it is a message for all of us that live in cities which specialise in one thing that our lives are on a knife edge and we don't know that they are um, uh, so in short. Glasgow rose on the back of shipbuilding. It first rose on the back of tobacco, and that's the beautiful old heart of Glasgow. And then it rose on the back of shipbuilding. And shipbuilding was the most important uh, industry uh, globally, I argue, uh, and I argue that Glasgow is, you know, goes down along with Rome as, as one of the most important cities in the history of the world. And, and most people don't know that. So in part, this was just motivated by me wanting to champion Glasgow. I love Glasgow. Um, To take anything, like it had had the third underground system and the only one that wasn't powered by steam. So it wasn't filthy like London and Budapest. Um, Kelvin and Watt, you know, actual fundamental measures of how we measure the world. They come from Glaswegian scientists. Um, The impressionist movement, in a sense, you could say in art started because Glaswegian, um traders started buying up that art because their art dealers were so forward-thinking. So at the turn of the 19th century, it literally was a hub of industry, culture. It was like Silicon Valley now. People were moving there to get part of be part of what was going on in Glasgow. Um, and it's an extreme economy because it went from that in the space of 50 years to being easily Europe's most troubled place. So the with male suicide rates um drug uh drug use rates that are were unseen anywhere else in europe and so that how how you it's like a kind of icarus city how you go from flying so high and being the best basically to being the most troubled was something i really wanted to understand
1: yeah i mean you talk about Kind of glasgow's decline but i want to stick up for glasgow um because i've got family there and i love it as well and, and it's one of the most creative cities in the country and, and in europe i mean it's had six turner prize winners 10 nominees you know it's got poets it's got bands like biffy Clyro and, and the booker prize winner who has just won it is also a glasgow writer so i think you can see you talk about the decline of industry but the creativity of that city has never died
0: Yes, I saw that the um, Doug something. Um, yes, yeah, Shiggy
1: Bane. is Bays, awesome. but yeah, yeah, it looks
0: it looks really interesting. It doesn't surprise me at all. And um, uh, a few people, you know, because I'm uh, from from the south, I guess, was born and I grew up in Dorset, said to me oh, you know, you're brave saying that Glasgow is a sort of failed economy and is an extreme economy. I said, well, not really, because if anyone reads it, they'll see that I just... What I'm trying to say is that this, this is one of the world's most amazing cities. And, of course, if you are one of the world's most amazing cities, you're, you know, there's, there's obviously something good in the water as well as something bad in the water. Um, and and as I say in the book, the, 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 the fact that it's got... Um, these amazing literary figures, even today, those people are in a long line that go back um, hundreds of years. It still is true, though, that um, if you go to the east end of Glasgow rather than the west end, it's hugely depressed. And, you know, um, uh, joblessness is rife. Life expectancy is is, is for, how, what fell for a long time in Glasgow. So there's this thing in the States at the moment, I'm not sure if you've seen deaths of despair, this notion of deaths of despair, it's based on a book by Anne Case and Angus Deaton that they did a couple of years ago. Well, Glasgow had, had deaths of despair and people were writing about that 10 years ago. There's this thing called the Glasgow effect, people just die too young and so um, in a way, that the, I wanted to make it a uh, sort of central part of, of, of my book. It's the only UK place I discuss. I don't discuss London. I actually don't think a big picture. I don't think London's that interesting from a long historical sweep. I think Glasgow is far more interesting, and that's why I focused on it. And w- we just have to accept as a country that we had a gem, an absolute gem, which could have easily rivaled London. Um, My family's from Manchester, so um, I'll be unpopular for saying, there's always this thing of which is Britain's second city and Mancunian's always like, it's it's Manchester. It's not, for the reasons you say, and the reasons that I set out about being the city that drove globalization, Glasgow literally drove the first globalization by inventing the steel hulled um, ship it's definitely Britain's second city. And the fact that even as great as it is, which you say, it should be, if we'd managed the economy well and managed to, and, and, and not made these um, mistakes, it should be way, way stronger than it is.
1: Yeah, I mean, you, you do make quite a compelling case about particular policy decisions that have been bad for Glasgow, and particularly around housing.
0: Yeah, so I think there's two things that happened. The first, the first is more something that I guess I should comment on or like is, is more kind of my focus of expertise as, as an economist and also as an economist that's worked a, a long time within government and that was the treatment of the shipping industry which um, again as a, as a little plug for something to watch there's um, and Sean Connery has just just died there's an amazing documentary, um, the only, I think the only documentary that Sean Connery ever did, he directed it and starred in it, and it's called The Bowler and the Bunnet, the, referring to the hats that the kind of managerial class and the, and the workers would wear in the Klaus region shipyards. And it's filmed at this time in the late 60s where the shipbuilding industry is on a knife edge. And I'm afraid, and it's not a party political thing because it lasted for sort of 25 years, it's really like a Westminster thing. There was just a failure to grapple the extent of um, overseas competition and to help the, the, uh, the glass region shipping industry and the UK shipping industry in a way that made any kind of kind of economic sense. And i go go through it um, in more detail in the book. You don't need to be an expert to, to understand that the things they didn't stack up. And so Glasgow was undermined in that sense. The second reason, which is a bit more controversial, is with um, reflects on the the tenement system, which I'm not saying that some tenements weren't squalid and that some of them, you know, was but some people did need to have better housing. Of course, that's true. It is also the case that if you go to Glasgow and you find people, particularly around um, Govan and Gorbals South of the river, places just close to where the, the heart of the shipbuilding industry would be, where huge street after street after street of tenements were razed to the ground. And then people were moved out onto these peripheral estates, which had no community spaces, no pubs, no shops. Those people have a huge sense of loss still about the fact that their communities, as the tenements were destroyed, their community was destroyed and every part of their social fabric, and I would say social capital, so neighbours that they would trade and exchange informally with, stuff that you wouldn't capture in an economic statistic, but it's a fundamental part of the lifeblood of the city, that was destroyed. So I, I came away thinking that, I mean, of course, hundreds of things have happened in a city over 50 years, but the two really big things you need to know about Glasgow are shipping, and we should have protected that more, and tenements, and as we were improving them, we should have realised that you need to support the community and not just build a load of new houses on the outskirts of the city.
1: Yeah, I think, what again, one of the really interesting things about your book is that you found sort of clear policy errors, but there's something much more intangible as well. There's the importance of these informal economies and, and of human capital. So, I mean, again, sort of thinking about the pandemic, what do you think governments can do to harness all that creativity and human energy, which you know, Glasgow clearly has, the UK has in spades. How can the government harness that to help us recover?
0: One of the things that I'm concerned about, about, where we sit right now, is the kind of fracturing of national policy and of a kind of national spirit, I guess. So what I mean by that is, and look, this is this is hugely hugely difficult, and I think one of the things that I should say that one of the mistakes that economists make, and I specifically didn't do this with the book, um, although you know some some people sort of have said uh, I should have done more, but I didn't want to do this is just go to a place and then think you've got the answers about everything. You know, this is a book about I hope really interesting stories about places that I hope people would read and then reflect on how the economy works. It's not one of those books that's like, you know, all 10 ways to mend the economy. Because let's face it, anyone that writes a book like that is talking nonsense because they they haven't got 10 ways in every single scenario to mend um, the economy. But you know, I should as somebody who spent most of my working life in, in policy have some ideas and the thing that I'm worried about is the following there's really good evidence, so statistical proper studies, that in, when a common shock happens to a society, actually that creates um, cohesion, it creates cooperation, supports social capital, and that that actually uh, helps you overcome it. And those are studies, particularly with things to do sort of natural disasters and so on. And and you can imagine why that might be. There's a kind of common enemy. We're all um, we're all in it together against this tsunami or against this earthquake or whatever it is. And I definitely, and, and that's, a, that's a theory that, you know, social scientists have studied. And I definitely saw that in my much more narrative interview-based approach, talking to the people of Indonesia who'd faced the huge um, tsunami waves. The thing I'm worried about now is that in the first phase of the coronavirus, we had this very national approach, you know, Thursday night clapping for the NHS. And there, were, there really was a kind of spirit of togetherness and then sometime through the summer when things got relaxed and but then cases started going back up and you know the the rules around what should be going on in Manchester versus the rest of the country all that sort of stuff it really started to fracture and i'm concerned that i'm concerned about that because if you have one set of rules you know in in wales and one set of the rules just over the border in bristol you know it's like 20 minute drive that undermines that sort of level of cohesion, and you know, Manchester's getting a different deal to London. What kind of funding are they getting? What kind of funding are we getting? And I think you're starting to see that you know, we, we're not seeing any clapping anymore for anyone. Um, and the erosion of the uh, a, a public by which and by which I mean all of us together doing the same thing approach, and so that's that's something which study, like doing this book has changed my thinking of, because for an economist is the wrong answer, right? So from with my pure um, mainstream economics hat on, I would say, uh, and which is what the government has been saying, if there's different um, conditions in different places, you obviously should fine tune your policy in those places. You should fine tune your lockdown policy in those places and your lockdown support. And that's the sort of straight up economic policy argument. I think there's a bigger thing, and, and you, you said it really well, there's this like, intangible um, like mesh that connects us all. In some sense, it's a bit better just to do everything as a country um, uh, because of that, I think. And so that, that's, that's something that, that I'm a bit concerned about at the moment. I think the government should be thinking more about.
1: Richard I think that's probably all we have time for but um if people want to read his excellent book Extreme Economies you can visit www.extremeconomies.com forward slash signed and if you enter the code capex you'll get a signed copy for the special price of seven pounds and that is exactly the ideal Christmas gift for the economist in your life
0: uh, or the non-economist <laughs> especially the non-economist I hope non-economists <laughs> read the book <laughs> economists read enough read enough economics books they can read something else but no this one's for the non-economists to tell them that economics isn't all boring and equations and stuff it's about real people in in very interesting places i hope thanks so much for having me thank you